welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that can guarantee, up and down, we've got documents to prove it, that it doesn't receive funding from the CIA or any other governmental Mm -hmm. institution. We're not courting defense contracts from the Pentagon. We're not seeking out. We're not on that one sketchy website. Looks like a Microsoft Excel file where you can pick up those contracts as depicted in movies (laughs) and other media. Yep, yep. We're just currently not funded, you know? So if you're looking, if, if basically, if the CIA is tapping this, which they almost definitely are, please reach out. You know, we're open to being shills, right, Amanda? Right, yeah. Come on. I'm not sure. Would you be comfortable being a mouthpiece for any particular um, governmental organization? Mm, how much are they willing to pay? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. Quite a bit, depending on, you know, are you willing to travel to, let's say, other countries? <laughs> I think it, for me, it would depend on the country. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And the and the contract and yeah. the risk involved. As we know from reading Burn Shadows, there can be considerable risk involved, depending on where you go and what you yeah. get up to there. If you have absolutely no clue why we're talking about governmental funding or CIA secret projects, that is because <laughs> you have found a book club episode where we'll be discussing the second half of a novel called Burnt Shadows by Camilla. Is it Shamsi? Do we agree on that? Yes. Shamsi? Yes. This is the part two of that. Um, Book clubs are our analytical deep dive episodes, so if you've stumbled upon this by accident, then, you know, just go look for part one, or we uh, we also put book recommendations for the books that we cover in the podcast feed, so if this is not the episode you want to listen to and you don't want to hear about the second half of this novel, (laughs) because you don't know anything about it, feel free to check those out. Uh, We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have social media accounts you can follow to track our progress and see what we're reading. Um, We are just at the Lightly Literary Podcast all one word on Facebook and Instagram. So follow us there, of course. We say please and thank you for that. Rate and recommend us to your friends. We're on basically every podcast platform. However you found us is perfectly fine, whether it's Apple or iTunes. Is that the same thing? That's the same thing. Google, Spotify, (laughs) whatever. I think, yeah, we're on Google Play, all kinds of platforms. And so, yeah, check us out, rate and recommend. Let's get into the specifics here, Amanda. As I already mentioned and kind of alluded to, we will be spoiling all of the novel Burnt Shadows at this point. We finished it. We do, uh, as I mentioned as well, book clubs in two parts. So at this point, anything in the novel is fair game. We will mostly be focusing on the back half of the story. But again, we do have some segments planned that will touch on just about everything. Are you feeling ready, Amanda, to uh, spoil this one? So ready. And get into some specifics. It is a rather intense second half of a novel. So yeah, if you're spoiler averse, this one has some major plot action in it. So let's get into the specifics. We'll begin with our first usual segment for these part twos, and that is highs and lows. So as we finish the book, we picked out some high points, some low points. Why don't you start us off, Amanda? Do you want to set the tone? Is it going to be highs or lows to start with? Um, uh, I guess I'll start with my low because I actually only oh, have one. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, and for me, the low is just really the final section of the novel. Yeah. Because I think it's just so different in a lot of ways from the first part. Not that I didn't enjoy the last part. I did. It's just that it was like very, um, I think, stylistically different. And also the pacing was different for me um, when hmm. I was reading it, where the, the first half of the novel um, is very much like, slow build in a lot of ways um still exciting but for different reasons the second half is is very much like action-packed in a lot of ways but yeah. also like yeah. emotionally it doesn't delve as much into the emotional aspects as much as the first half did even though it is still highly 
you know, emotionally charged. It's just that the way that she portrays the emotions are, are done differently in the first and the second half. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so it's we she did kind of the thing we predicted or i guess i predicted that she might which is shift away from hiroko it wasn't the full i predicted that maybe hiroko wouldn't even survive to the end of the book and she definitely does the final scene she is in which you know feels fitting enough i suppose but it doesn't switching to kim as much as it did i don't think worked out as well as that was one of my lows too i'm just tagging on at this point too but i just think kim needed a bit more development especially to sell me on the ending so much of the emotional weight of this conclusion is put on kim's character and her actions her behavior the things she says the things she does the betrayal that she commits so i and i went back after finishing it and reread some of the earlier scenes when she lives with hiroko when her mom is still alive I just think that some of those early setups for their their relationship are just not as good as the first half of the book. And I just don't think that Kim fit into the story as well as the earlier characters did in fitting into the earlier parts of the story. I pulled a couple quick examples of this. I won't read these quotes for too long. Um, One of them was from my page um, 300. There's an exchange between Kim and Hiroko about the atomic bomb. And Hiroko runs through all these reasons why she she can't get over it. She's, she kind of says that she regrets caring so much. And she talks about these grand perspectives of Churchill, Stalin, the Emperor. My stories seem so small, so tiny, a fragment in the big picture. Even Nagasaki, 75,000 dead, is just a fraction of the 72 million who died in the war. And then she says, why all this fuss about the 0.001%? And that's Hiroko trying to like process her trauma and understand her own hang-ups, her own point of view. And I thought, in that moment, Kim responds, you lived it, your father died in it, your fiancé died in it, there's no shame in putting all the weight in the world on that. And then Hiroka has a very negative reaction. I I didn't understand this exchange almost at all. Like, given what Hiroko said, is there any other answer to the question that she, that is plaguing her? It, she cares about it so much because it affected her life dramatically, and it spiraled, you know, forever changed the course of things in her life. Now, granted... In terms of the development of, let's say, global events, world history, military history, obviously a functional atomic weapon pretty profoundly changes many big picture kind of like warfare things. But I don't think that's what, like, what is Hiroko after in in this line of questioning? I thought that whole exchange was confusing. Is it meant to show that Kim is too narrow-minded and, like, feels too much in a personal sense and doesn't have a big-picture sense of the world? Or I don't, I just, when I look back at interactions like that, I, the whole conclusion rides on those two characters having that final exchange. And I don't think the book got there uh, for me with Kim. What did you think about that, or the conclusion? Yeah, so the that particular exchange between the two, like the way that I viewed Hiroko versus Kim. Hiroko is uh, somebody who definitely does have, like obviously she, she personally lived through all that stuff, but she's trying to look at it from the perspective of not her own personal trauma and how she feels about it, but she's mm-hmm. looking at it from like a world perspective. Like that's why she also focused, like she's, um, trying to get more information about the the nuclear status of India and Pakistan and like what's going on there because yeah, she doesn't yeah. have family there anymore and it do- and it would not necessarily personally impact her because she doesn't even live there at that point but on a a world scale on a on a human scale so that's what she's trying to look at well, it. I th- yeah 
why is she, why is she framing it as questions then? She seems to understand why it plagues her. It's a disturbing world development. I mean, I guess Kim reframing it in the personal does bug her. It also ends with, I thought, maybe kind of a corny line, like she throws her gloves at Kim and then it says Kim smacks herself with the gloves hard. And it was just kind of like, okay, it was a maybe a touch of melodrama about it. Like it didn't, it didn't seem like Kim digressed that badly. Just the whole, the drama of the exchange felt heightened, especially looking over how it, the novel decides to wrap up. Just looking back at it now felt too heightened or something. The, the, a few of those exchanges throughout felt a bit awkward in retrospect to me. But l- we can revisit the line. But like, why? So I guess I'm just looking back at it. it. When I read it, I read it as a pretty clear like disagreement about these, how world events affect people on a per Like I, I didn't feel confused when I read it, but when I went back to look over some of their emotional development and the, just their relationship development, I just can't. Now I'm like stuck trying to unpack the scene. I don't know if I can comprehend because i just feel like her line of questioning has a clear answer that she has so like when kim offers up the only like reasonable alternative why is the why does this happen this interaction end that way i think because uh kim is so american um in that response where it's very much the the individual centered right when Mm -hmm. when hiroko encounters the Americans after Nagasaki and they're like, oh, well, and she's fine with them until they make the comment like, well, the bomb saved American lives. Like, that's, yes, that's right. the only thing that's important, right? So she has a very mixed response to Americans in general. She admires them for some things, but then she, she thinks that they're just so egocentric. They're but just is, so is American. Kim not, is Kim not offering personal empathy, though, by saying of course you should be traumatized. It was a horrible thing that happened to you. Like she's taking she, the counter to America position in that conversation. Is she? Because this is like at the same time as nine eleven, right? Like the, the aftermath of nine eleven and the, the justification for the, um, what had happened afterwards, the retaliation was that it, it was American lives. How dare you do this to America and mm-hmm. stuff like this. So it was like very much, again, a, an American centric response. And but she's, um, she's offering Hiroko that same feeling for the atomic bomb. That's she says, you lived it. You should be able to put all the weight in the world into it. So she's like offering right. her own worldview, which again, Hiroko rejects. Uh, but then in the same token, like then why is Hiroko having identity confusion? She like, okay, then she takes the grand view of world history, and then why is she so upset? Like, either you detach and you take that view, or you let it personally affect you. Like, what other, I just, I guess I don't see the point of this conversation. And Kim just doesn't, she does offer her the same self-centered, rather, if that seems like a fair description. But she gives her the emotional out in that way, saying like, yeah, it's, it personally traumatized you, why wouldn't it affect you? Mm-hmm. Is that not, you're saying maybe that's like an American... She so she like doesn't like him in this moment because she offers her an American out, but she w- herself won't accept her own like cultural out. So she's just kind of stuck. Is that her like her? Is that how you're reading it, or is that too simple? Uh, kind of. So the Hiroko's uh, the way that I was reading it is that Hiroko's understanding of like what has happened, like the 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 atrocities that have happened in in all these wars, including when when um pakistan um separated from india and then like yeah. her husband sajad had lost his home and his sense of culture and even a piece of like his identity in right. a lot of ways um that was all very much because of individuals 
and their their ideas of like what's right, what's wrong, what you know, in that case it was um whether they they were Hindu or Muslim, right? right. Um, um and so the the idea of like this um of these actions, these things where it it hurts and negatively affects people is because of a person's of a group of people's sense of superiority over another's, which is also related to the the imperialism that we saw earlier with um, right and the British, with British yeah. um, rule over India, which is I think why there was like that whole focus on that section as well. Um, so Hiroko's thing is like she's the way that I read the whole novel is that it's, it's very much like anti anti-nationalism to the point of like the feeling of absolute superiority and nobody messes with us and we'll always get back at somebody and my our lives mm-hmm. matter more than other people's lives right um and she has that, that cab driver think, exchange makes that very clear or I, yeah. maybe it's like she, what she thinks when she's talking to him but yeah she makes it or maybe it's when ilsa's still alive and she talks but at some point she makes her philosophy pretty clear about like why right. is that why does it come down to this always why is there no room for dialogue? Like, what is, why does this keep happening? Something like that. Right. Right. And and that's why I think she takes issue with the idea of, of making things so personal in, in, even for her with Nagasaki. Yes, it was a personal thing. She mm-hmm. lost a lot, but everybody lost a lot. And for what? Because people in America lost a lot. So they wanted to impart that pain on some, on on another town on two other cities right um that kind of stuff so it's just like this this vicious cycle of like personal loss therefore i'm going to make other people feel that same pain and so i think that's why she takes issue with kim specifically because kim is out of all the characters that we've met kim is the only one who is truly american she's the one born in america right right um and so and her like the first time we meet her, she's rebelling. She's like your typical American teenager, which is what mm-hmm. I had pointed out in the last episode. I was like, my my kind of like iffy thing was like Kim's character because I was like, she's such a stereotype, and she's meant to be right. And and then in later as an adult, we encounter Kim again, and she is again just so American. She's so affected by nine eleven, and she's like, she just is so American in every yeah. response that she has. So I think she's meant to be that stereotype. And so it's Hiroko as somebody with like the grand view of things reacting to an American point of view is how I read that. Conversation. I suppose the, I suppose the thing in the conversation that confuses me is Hiroko is pressing her for an answer when it seems like she has one. So I don't like that's the part because she she asks her, like, why am I so caught up on this? It's like, if you're not settled, then why are you pressing her to explain your emotional state for you? <laughs> it's I guess it's I didn't just- see it as her asking her opinion. I think that she was grilling her to try to get her to agree with her to come to the same conclusion as her, hoping that she would come to the same conclusion as her. Was how oh, I read yeah. that. Yeah, I suppose that does match with the stories, too with the mythology trying to, I don't know, make it more abstract or communal or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I suppose. Yeah. She could be doing it rhetorically. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how I read it. Anyway. Well, it definitely fits in with their, with, you know, as you noted, right. Her development throughout the story, all that stuff. Um, 
And I think, was there, I wrote down page 333, I don't remember why, though, to be honest. There was some other exchange between them. It just, the way the book wants to conclude on this down note and kind of, not ambiguous, but kind of a sour down note with those two, I, it just made me have to rethink a lot of their earlier exchanges and a lot of their yeah. earlier interactions. Yeah. I don't know why I wrote down page 333. Yeah, eh, not, yeah, that conversation was a good one to explain it anyway. Um, <laughs> any other, um, you said that was a low for you, right? I've got, we can start with lows because I've only got one yeah. more because it's just nice. that Kim, we didn't talk about the how the novel wraps up, obviously. I'm assuming we'll get there, I don't know, probably at some point, but I just thought it was kind of odd to have Kim take it to that extreme or something, but whatever. I don't want to edit the book as, as we go. Um, the only other low for me, I, I don't even know if it was a low because stylistically, I kind of enjoyed this. Uh, she just really likes stylistically to make death scenes really curt in this, in the story. That's clearly her stylistic kind of preference and her emotional kind of preference is every time a character dies, it is quite suddenly in the narrative and with no buildup, or almost expectation. There are moments or slight details of tension. She kind of goes into this more objective point of view, especially when Harry dies. There's a couple sentences before it that are written in in kind of a, in, a narrator top-down view that definitely alert you that something's strange. Like, why are you observing all these weird little details all of a sudden? That And she does that a couple times, but... I don't know. I, I suppose I didn't want the novel to pack more of a punch at the deaths, but because each one means something and each one is very propulsive. So in that novelistic yeah. sense that they all make sense and they all kind of like work uh, functionally. I, to me on 306, when Harry died, I just, I, I don't know, I guess I could have used a little more emotion to it. It could maybe a little more, not drama, but just a little more heightened kind of intensity to it, especially since the scene is a gunfire scene. It just, mm-hmm. but you know, it fit in well. Ilsa met the same fate. Sajad, extremely curt like that's a one line and then it and then she's touching his dead body kind of caressing him like it's this is just the way that she likes to portray these moments of transition and so i guess i don't fault it it's very consistent but something about the hairy one i guess it was the maybe the gunfire or something but it just felt like maybe some more i don't know could have been injected into those scenes did you like them because i i kind of did like it i just it stood out to me i guess i i I liked it in that I I did not want to see a whole lot of like gore and yeah, stuff like that, especially right. since the way that all of these characters died, it's not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's not pleasant. Um, but I also thought that perhaps it's like how quickly everything ends for each of these characters. It's also kind of like they they're all in some way just like instantly killed in violence yeah, and it's that yeah. instant there's no way to react there's nothing that they can do in the face of that violence they just even Sajad who sees the gun he's like I think she explains it as he raises his hands um, mm-hmm. in response to yeah. that but he's still gunned down like that that all, each of the deaths it's just like the, the helplessness in the face so of that kind of violence she intriguingly gives him one line of internal dialogue though or internal mm-hmm. what we call monologue I think he says he wonders something like why is that guy pointing a gun at me or something yeah. I don't I don't even know if it's in first person to be honest but it's something and I just don't know I'm gonna officially dig in just to double check I don't think Harry's given anything quite like that no, because yeah. it's told from like Raza's he's, point. Yeah, of view. he was bending down. He sinks in, or he fell in synchronized response. His shirt in carnadine, a word I don't even know if I know, in the bright lights of the Humvee. 
So yeah, it's definitely more objective. And like I said, there's some sentences before it too that felt. I don't. Oh, it's the yeah, it's this one line paragraph. He was bending down to pick up the ball when he saw movement up in the guard tower, and I just that combination of giving that its own space and then also mentioning the guard tower. Um, it just felt like somebody was about to die. I don't, but I guess that's oh, just yeah. good tension. You know, she's she's good at that for sure. Each death felt both expected and shocking. So I, I suppose stylistically, keeping it so, I wrote down in the, my notes. It almost felt polite, like she didn't want to dwell on it or kind of make it grotesque or make it a scene. Which I right. like, you said no go. I don't. I definitely don't want more gore. That would yeah. be the opposite. I I felt like maybe some more. Uh, yeah, she just jumps immediately to the aftermath, which I respect. I, I suppose. I don't really have it, and I, nor do I want to offer edits, but I don't even really have an edit for it. It's more of just an observation. <laughs> and I, yeah, I kind of yeah. liked it. I did. You had um, questioned last time about whether, because of like how she writes some scenes, whether she is British. And I was like reading up quickly on her biography. Mm-hmm. And she is from Pakistan. She was born and raised in Pakistan, but she had, and she was, um, she went to college, I think, in the United States. Okay. But she is now a British citizen and the reason i i finally circled back to on why i was so confused by that it's because the she won an award for this book that only british published books can win Mm -hmm. so that was part of my confusion i think but as to where she's from or what her background was um let's move into some highs because we're running long but that's okay we'll run as long as we want (laughs) no it's on me anyway (laughs) i had the long lows um why don't you start us off with a high moment for you or detail uh, sure. I said the obvious planning and care that was put into the writing of this novel. If you, um, we had, you had said we would talk about the ending and for sure yeah. we will because yeah. um, what I liked was the comparing the prologue versus the last sentence of the novel. So the prologue is obviously um, Raza at, in Guantanamo, I'm, I'm supposing, um, oh, yeah, because yeah. he's about to don an orange jumpsuit, and they have completely gotten him, stripped him naked, um, kind of he feels dehumanized in a lot of ways, um, and he's about to don a prisoner's outfit. And then the last sentence of the um, novel, it says, Hiroko stood up and walked slowly over to the window outside, at least the world went on. So she's like, she is feeling imprisoned in a way as well Mm -hmm. as her son at the beginning of the novel who can't even see the outside so he doesn't know what is going on on the outside and his whole world is in that cell at this moment and he he there's nothing that he can do he can't move on either because he's now thanks to the patriot act probably going to be in there for the rest of his life (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and then with Hiroko, she is imprisoned in, in, in an emotional way, in a, in a different way, um, but she can still see the outside. So I like that they're both kind of imprisoned in a way, and it's, it starts with her son's imprisonment and then ends ultimately in her imprisonment, but she is still able to see the outside world as well. So I thought yeah. that was just really well planned out and I think very purposeful, and I really appreciate that about this writing. Yeah, completely. It it does feel very cohesive. And to keep Hiroko as a consistent 
narrative thread as a thematic kind of foundation of the whole story, I think works perfectly well. And wasn't the the line about her, the feathers burning, falling, you know, obviously recalling the symbol of her back and everything. That's towards yeah. the end, right? Is that on the last page or very near? Um, yeah, the, the, the dark birds were between them. They're burnt feathers everywhere. Yeah. 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 That was between her and Kim. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... Well, we can just talk about it now, I suppose. There will be no better time. I think the emotions, the overall ending place, the conclusion, the... the What's the literary word for that? <laughs> After the climax. Some French term. I don't know. Who knows? I think it the all... Denouement. Yeah, denouement or something. Yeah, I think that's it. It it worked for me. The climax, though, I don't know. That would be an edit for sure. I, did Kim have to put him in prison after his whole journey? I mean, it does. There's such a an obvious, devastating twist to it that it almost felt too obvious and too devastating, if that makes sense. Of all the ways that Raz's journey could have concluded, it he was already so implicated and so in trouble for, for Kim to have to be the one to do it just seemed it it did feel soap operatic to me which for good or ill i mean that's one way to build a drum and there's nothing invalid about it perhaps it's just not my preference i would have preferred a slightly plot wise quieter conclusion i don't know why kim even the exchange in the car her emotional state with her father's death plus the 911 events affecting her even that i was kind of in the betrayal of him felt, eh, I was already shaky with that. I was like, I don't know if this feels earned to me. Again, thematically, it makes a lot of sense given we've already talked about what Sim kind of, or Kim kind of symbolizes in the story, especially in contrast right. to Hiroko. So again, I'm on board with all that. It's it, She had a journey, whether it was developed enough or not, but it's it makes sense. But then to have him come in and do the swap and it just... That felt like soap opera to me in a very serious way, where the rest of the book felt way more measured. Maybe the Sajad murder is kind of that level of random, perhaps unnecessary, propulsive drama. But I don't know why, but that scene, that climactic scene, and not uh, the resolution after, I think Kim and Hiroko having the final word together, Hiroko feeling trapped, not escaping the cycle, having a new vicious way to kind of feel the reverberations, all that stuff works. The actual exchange there, I don't, I don't know. Did you feel satisfied by it? Did it feel too, like too much? Was it just right? I was okay with it. Um, I think because, uh, it worked for me thematically. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I yeah. see the, the idea of it being, maybe a bit heavy-handed as far as like this is where i go into editor brain let me tell you how my brain works it's broken because i think <laughs> when i hit a scene like that that i don't necessarily love though i respect and understand and as i said it does work thematically it does my brain's like okay so what are we trying to hit thematically then that kim in the end made a personal selfish decision she kind of represents this american ideal why can't we have her turn him in raza sees it and then now he can never feel the same about this legacy now raza's conflicted because he loves harry harry did a lot for him but now he knows that his offspring betrayed him forever he spent so much effort trying to save this man now all that work is undone like why does raza have to it just felt I think this is another part of it, too. I think, and this is a high for me, his journey back had some really intriguing detail in it, and I just mm -hmm. don't know if it had enough time to breathe, 
Like it, those scenes were so intense and interesting, but it did feel rushed. I really loved it though. I think his whole time in the Middle East, trying to figure out his life and career and everything. But, and so then to rush kind of, I didn't feel like we got enough time with it, though it was well done to then have it end so abruptly. And frankly, kind of just, again, in that heightened, maybe too dramatic fashion, there's other ways to do that. There's ways that she he sees it as a betrayal. There's ways that he sees that and then feels like I can never trust America ever again. Like, I don't know what my relationship was to Harry, but it's over or different forever. Or, I don't know. I'm just thinking through all these different ways that it doesn't have to be that specific. You know, the, the people flip around. Of course, the way thematically, though, does it work? Of course, because Raza felt his whole life like he betrayed his this friend he took advantage of, Abdullah. So, of course, him doing a sacrificial move at the end feels like some kind of penance for him or making it up. And so, yeah, I I don't know. I just, my brain can't help but churn through how could we have tweaked this so it doesn't feel so unnecessarily convoluted and coincidental. I mean, part of it is so coincidental. Oh, they just happened to be there at the perfect time. They, he just happened like it. And uh, you know, there's good drama in that too, though. Of course, good drama, you have to bring coincidences to to bear. I mean, that's part of this dramatic stakes and that's how plot moves. So I respect it too, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe my brain is broken, but you, so you enjoyed the scene again. I think it worked thematically. Yeah. It's not a, I don't know if I enjoyed it, but I was like, yeah, that makes sense to me. This is yeah. this is what I would expect would happen. Yeah. And um yeah, and it just like cemented the idea that, you know, Kim is meant to be this the the American stereotype and and the distrust because of misunderstanding and because of different cultural values and because she mm-hmm. comes from a life of privilege where she doesn't understand driving through um uh, um, these these stuffed animals and you know she only thinks that they're driving through just because they like can't bother to drive around this symbol of innocence but mm-hmm. they're driving through in order to like collect these animals to send back to their to their families that they haven't seen in years and years <laughs> yeah um, I think in the end that's a great scene to talk about or at least to reference because I think maybe that does symbolize it or um, not symbolize it but represent it for me I think Kim in the end is packaged into too many moments and not enough actual character development for her to bear the weight of the story at the end, the way she does. I think the other Mm -hmm. characters are not developed in that only symbolic quick hitting. Here's a moment that's meant to really represent a lot for this person. It's just that Hiroko and all the other characters get so much more time. Kim just doesn't. And so to then put the, the, the burden of the conclusion on her in this huge way, it just, I guess that part of it is why, but you're right. That seems really important to understanding her and the, the conversation that they have and her sort of her backstory about the, that she can't settle down or that she's an engineer all these paragraphs about her kind of mindset as an engineer and i don't know yeah it, it does i think there's some interesting complexity and i think it does work but it does feel like she just got more of a symbolic representation or something than a thoroughly developed like patient one i don't know if yeah, that makes sense sure. but what yeah, other highs for you sense. i know you have a couple more yeah um i said uh the beautiful and unique descriptions i just i mm-hmm. really enjoy shamsi's like way of writing in general, mm-hmm. I think that she she's got um, a unique way of, of depicting scenes, and, and I love it. Um, yeah. So I chose a quote 
from page nine. The dry grass uh, crackles beneath his feet. He feels as though he is snapping the backs of tiny creatures as he walks across to the giant camphor tree to which the birds are fastened, rotating slowly in the faint breeze. It is Hiroko who first referred to his purple notebooks as birds the day they met, the only time she had been inside his house. She lifted a notebook off his desk, splayed and glided it around his room. The animation of her touch made him acutely conscious of the lifelessness of his work. Sentences thrown down on paper year after year simply so he could pretend there was some purpose to his being here, some excuse for cowering in a world from which he felt so separate that nothing in it could ever implicate him. We only see Conrad like at the very beginning and it's super brief, Mm -hmm. but I think that we get a really good sense of who he is as a person. Um, through scenes like this where the the description of how he views Hiroko and even some of Hiroko's like remembrances of him and and what he would say he is very much like a romantic in a lot like the capital R romantic um like a poet in his soul and everything else um and and I think that this scene just like this one paragraph that she included in in the beginning I think that that really kind of is able to depict a lot about who Conrad is, but also give us a peek into who Hiroko is ultimately as well. Yeah, no, certainly. And that's part of the cohesion too. It's a good quote to pull for that. I pulled, I think maybe you can agree with this. I, as my final high that I'll mention briefly, then we'll move to essays, but I know I mentioned Raza, his trying to suffer and get out of the Middle East after the betrayal. I forget it. What was his coworker? The guy who didn't trust him? the security uh, i don't even remember his name was it tom or something like <laughs> yeah, that the, it was the, some super american name yeah <laughs> the, the grumpy disgruntled white career man who just yeah, yeah doesn't have any trust for in anyone including harry's people so apparently not the yeah. closest colleagues i guess but anyway that whole fleeing scene was terrifying but i do think my, two of my highs were from the same section of the book i do think the section when they're settled in pakistan and they're trying to raise raza and having a life there i think that's the most cohesive well-executed part of the whole novel would you if you had to pick a part would you agree that's the best one or do you think a different section is better i actually think maybe the opening with the bomb is the best part actually in terms of just writing and intensity and moment to moment but i do think as a whole like both of my highs were from the section when they're in pakistan like the other one i included was when harry tries to make promises to raza and then obviously on 192 there's this betrayal where raza's panicking and saying things like you promised those were your words you said you'd get me in and then of course you look back at the dialogue and he kind of said it and then of course kind of didn't and he's trying to do the thing and be a good white savior and he just wasn't executing that and making promises he couldn't deliver on he was caught up in the moment of trying to help and not actually thinking through these things and how they would how they would affect Raza I thought that exchange and then also when Raza ends up in the camp in Afghanistan like those two scenes to me are the best two moments in the entire book and they both come in the same section the intensity of when he gets to the camps the horror of every moment figuring out his plan is an awful child's plan and is not is not going to match up in any way with his expectations and getting whisked away I just thought there were so many quotes worth quoting there I won't but I those two moments hit me the most in the whole book and they're in the same section which um which section again did it best for you you think um i really enjoyed that section and but probably my favorite um just because of 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 how she kind of like really 
delved into her personal style um, would be the first section when, mm-hmm. when it's uh, Hiroko and Conrad. And we're not even sure yeah. who the real protagonist is at the beginning, right? We're like, yep. is who's going to be the real narrator? Because we kind of start off more with Conrad than with Hiroko, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting as well. But I, I think that stylistically, that was my favorite um, just because the, the language uh, development in that section was just so great. Yeah, um, yeah beautifully done um but as far as um a lot of like the the intensity and the character development and stuff i think that the raza's trip to afghanistan the uh the deluded trip to uh-huh. afghanistan, idealistic trip i think that yeah so i think that that was um a really important point in in the novel as well yeah, it had me because you had told me it was the novel was kind of related to terrorism in a way. We kind of gave that up in part one. And I so that scene I felt doubly intense about because I couldn't tell is he just going to have to live here and go with this and pretend is he going to get out or his parents going to f- it just had such attention because I've there is a version of this book in my opinion that is just he ends up in that lifestyle. He tries to help reluctantly obviously and and through much turmoil and then just ends up becoming a taliban member basically probably in the in the new newly formed government after russia is expelled so i don't know yeah that whole moment i thought that whole scene i thought was just the best some of the best but the opening's extraordinary let's move on to essays now we've chatted for a while was there anything left actually i should let you speak on it any other high moments you want to talk about I was just going to say, like, we've already kind of touched on it. It's like the repeating mm-hmm. motifs and, and themes throughout, which ties in with the idea of, like, how carefully planned this novel obviously was. So yeah. I just I love the bird motif, especially just because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's from from cover to cover. We have that. Um, and and it's done. It's not overly done. I think some of the references are pretty subtle. But, yeah, I thought that was. Really yeah, it's fun. not as if every chapter there's some kind of like in Hiroko flew away or, you know, that's awful. Right. right? That's Dr. <laughs> Seuss, sub Dr. Seuss quality. But you get what I mean. There's it's not like every chapter she has a bird moment. So it is very right. subtle. It's very restrained, which does feel really good. I'll throw my first imaginary essay or I'll throw mine to you first. Rather, uh, imaginary essay is the section we do in the part two where we have a, one final analytical kind of look at the book and we look at it through the lens of an essay we've imagined. We've not actually prepared these essays, of course, if it's your first time listening. We just do an outline and use it as a way to, again, analyze the book one final way. I cheated this week, as I tend to do. I'll always find new ways to cheat these, I guess, or delay or something. (laughs) Anyway, there's a discussion guide at the end of my copy, and I think it had 20, 15 or 20 questions in it. And I just borrowed one of those. I've never done that before, so we're trying something new. Why not? We're innovating on the pod. So this is from this is straight from the discussion guide. There were a couple questions, but I chose, you know what? And I'll be honest, I chose this one because I didn't have an answer to it, and I thought it was kind of a weird question. (laughs) So (laughs) there you go. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, feel free to give it back to me at some point in the future. But I I read this and I thought it's not an irrelevant question, but it wouldn't have been the first analysis I would have done on this book. First thing I would have thought about, but that's the interest of it, right? I'm curious to see what you'll say. Anyway, we're going to use this one. The question is, what does this novel, which opens with the scarring of a woman's back, have to say about beauty and truth? So take take it away if you feel ready. Sure. Um, yeah, when I read the question, I was like, well, crap. Uh, <laughs> so. You should have just picked another one and, been, and said, Travis, you're an ass. <laughs> it's the worst one. There's 20 of them. Um, no, it's fine. It, it, I was like, okay, how am I going to frame this? So 
it seems that uh, to me, beauty and truth are actually at odds with one another in this novel. Um, so I'll start with that idea of, of, of beauty, how beauty is portrayed. So um, Hiroko's back specifically because it starts with that Hiroko's mm-hmm. back is a reminder of the atrocity of Nagasaki and her inability to escape the lasting effects of the bombing. It's a symbol for the truth of war of the actions of quote, saving American lives. So that it's taking away the beauty, the, the almost like rosy glasses of like, Oh yes, there's a war going on, but there's, um, you know, we're fine. We're unaffected. It's so far away. Like, yes, we might lose a couple of people like Hiroko had lost a student in particular, um, Mm -hmm. uh, to, a uh, for, he did like a kamikaze attack. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, but other than that, that's still so far removed. Right. Um, but then the bombing itself, which leaves the scar is the truth of war. It's the, it's the destruction of war. So that, that, taking away of beauty is like by taking away the beauty of something you are then revealing the truth of that something in some ways um so that's how i started to see it i don't want to interrupt or ruin your essay flow do you read the kimono in a really significant way because i still found it very meaningful that she did start the novel admiring america in the midst of a war wanting to be modern wanting to get away from traditional culture in japan and not exactly loving the empire not exactly loving what that was doing and representing she was doing her factory job but she wanted modernity that seemingly other places had or you know were proposing so do you read the kimono thing in any symbolic way um, I kind of do, especially uh, when compared to when they're living in Pakistan and the obsession with modernity, especially Western modernity, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. um, Raza is just as into um, American culture right. as Hiroko and Hiroko's mom specifically, right? Hiroko's mom was the one who kind of like started that um, in her mind of like what it means to be modern is to be more American. Um, so the kimono to me is like the, the inescapability of like your, your cultural past and, and your cultural influences in a lot of ways. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. I, yeah. I was just curious what your thoughts were on that too. Yeah. Um, so continuing with the idea of, of beauty, um, Conrad specifically, as I had mentioned before, I think that he was kind of like a poet um, in a lot of ways, even though he did not, I think, write poetry, um, <laughs> but he saw poetry in things. Um, he sees beauty in a lot of things, but by when when we read the things that he says and, and when we see his perspective on things, he sees beauty by exaggerating that beauty, by kind of like blurring the lines of reality. So once again, we see the idea of, of beauty and truth being at odds with each other in a lot of ways. You have to distort one in order to have the other. Um, Sajad also mentioned the beauty of poetry. Um, he talks about how his brother, uh, how the language actually itself is, is meant to be more poetic. I mean, he comes from a family of calligraphers, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah. there's meant to be beauty there, but he doesn't always quite understand 
like some of the poetry that's provided and stuff like that. He thinks that it's, you know, it sounds great, but there isn't that grain of truth that he can relate to either um, within, within that poetry and within even the life of a calligrapher. Yeah. Um, and then Ilsa is described as beautiful, but her entire like idea of happiness in her life is just a big fat, like, why it's a disappointment to her um her she she's lying about herself in a lot of ways she's lying about her relationship um and it's not until we see her when she's like 90 something years old she's really old and is no longer seen as beautiful she's seen as striking um Mm -hmm. yeah but not beautiful anymore um that's when she's comfortable with herself and she is comfortable with the truth of herself and is not hiding yeah. anything about herself. So again, we see that idea of like beauty versus truth. Um, and I know although beauty is. Yeah. Oh no. Sorry. Finish your thought on her. There's just interesting things with her in New York. Sorry. No, no continue. Yeah. I was going to move on. So. I was just thinking that with her, I remember the scene vividly because it's obviously it's intensity, but she lives with someone in New York and walks in on them having um, gay sex, which is obviously a novelty to her culturally in terms of her beliefs and everything that I don't think homosexuality yeah. or that identity was a big part of her life before moving there, obviously. Right. And so, yeah, I just that whole scene I think was meant to represent a lot of then how she turned her life around in New York. Do you think then it's kind of a shame we didn't get any time in that version because it's again it's another ha- in that second half of the book it's another thing that I feel like a lot of the heavy lifting is done through inference and representation or symbolism or however you want to phrase it, but it's we don't actually spend time there. But I think it's meant to be it's heavily implied that she really did find her freedom in New York. Yeah, I think no. It wasn't explored, but I don't think that it was necessary because Elsa is not the main focus. Yeah, of she's, course. She's more of like just like a support character for Hiroko in a lot of ways. She's she's a means to an end for Hiroko. She's the, the way for Hiroko to kind of like be able to set up her life in both Pakistan by selling the, the jewelry that she was given and then also to start a new life in New York. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, if, it, for me, it didn't matter as much. I think that it mattered in that, you know, why would Hiroko, like, keep in touch with somebody that would be, like, super vapid and, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. close-minded? But, um, yeah, so she loses touch with Ilsa, and then she gets back in touch with Ilsa after Ilsa, you know, kind of grows up. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I was curious your thoughts on that, but it's she does. I'll I'll speak on her a little bit when you get to your question for me because she does, in some ways, represent some things about American ideals. Anyway, feel free to continue. Um, Although beauty is often deceptive in the novel, the author still champions truth. In that, the truth may not seem beautiful, but it is certainly less harmful in a lot of ways. so when Raza realizes that he's a bit of a braggart <laughs> and a spoiled brat and that he's responsible for Abdullah in a lot of ways and what's, what happened to Abdullah, especially like convincing Abdullah to go to Afghanistan, go back to Afghanistan and join the um, – and become a muhajid, was that what it was? Yeah, I think it's just a term for a specific fighter. Maybe like a yeah. some kind of religious term, perhaps. I didn't look it up, to be honest. I was just reading it as like warrior fighter. Right. Maybe like um, a freedom fighter. So, so that is something that was hard for him to do, and it definitely, he had this 
um, rosy view of like who he was as a person, even going, like we discussed going to Afghanistan with Abdullah, he had this like innocent, like really beautiful idea of what would happen. It's a beautiful way to end this friendship and, and it'll be great. And then the reality of it. And so that reality is not beautiful, but by coming to terms with that, he is able to make amends and to help Abdullah later. Um, mm-hmm. because he's able to see truthfully uh, what kind of situation he's actually put Abdullah in and what kind of situation right. he was putting himself in. Um, there's also the when Kim analyzes her bigotry and her actions and feelings about Abdullah. Um, so that she also has a rosy she, – she struggles with, like, I'm not a bigot. Like, of course I'm not. I I purposefully, you know, try to – make eye contact with people who look like they might be uh, from the Middle East and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so she she has that rosy view of herself as well. But then with the Raza situation, when she, when she complies with Raza, when Raza gives her the look like keep your – and he says to her in Urdu, like, don't. Don't talk, right? Stay mm-hmm. quiet. Um, then she comes to the realization like – uh, I am actually being quite prejudiced. What was my whole reasoning for even turning Abdullah in? This is ridiculous. Um, so th- then that that truth about herself is finally seen, and, and that hopefully in future will prevent her from doing something like that again. Um, mm-hmm, and then yeah. Hiroko's burns, again, um, they're reminders of the bombing and warning against the idea of nationalism in the type of nationalism that leads to warfare and that leads to bigotry and that leads to a sense of superiority um, and the idea that my people are more important than yours. So that idea again of, of the truth of war as a way of kind of like warning against idealizing and beautifying perceptions, especially of your, your sense your country's sense of worth over another country's yeah yeah holding up a nation state i right. the only thing i was thinking of when you were talking about all those excellent ideas was the do you remember how raza was trying to have a kind of dating his friend's sister or at least yeah. chatting with her and she makes comments about how she could never be with him or marry him because he's poisoned you know the who knows what he's inherited genetically that's a bit right. of a commentary on beauty too in a sense i mean it's unseen of course but like you said you're talking about how it's beauty is deceptive in the book you know he's like a very attractive young boy he's very smart he's outgoing he's popular he's well liked and everything but of mm-hmm. course there are these things that that you know, beauty doesn't certainly give him a comfortable position societally, and then you know he has the testing issues, which is maybe a different thematic thing. But it just reminded me of that too. That was another moment where attraction, you know, was brought up or something. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a good-looking guy, but uh, and and he he had this idea that everybody accepted him too. Yeah, right? that was right. the the beauty of of being the smartest kid in the neighborhood, but. In reality, they were all kind of like, oh, he's damaged goods, you know, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how smart he is. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Any other thoughts on beauty or truth or both? Nope, that was uh, well, a, that was t- the best I could do. A tough question fielded well. Yeah, yeah I, well, I like that you went character by character. It worked well, I think, for it. And it's, I my background and process on that one is 100% exposed now. I was being totally transparent there. 
<laughs> I picked it because I it was the one question. I frankly thought a lot of the other ones were duds, just in that I don't think there was much debate about them. If that makes sense, they they were they mm-hmm. seemed like they had clear answers in the novel. That was the one that I didn't think had a clear answer at all. I was I just yeah. thought like, whoa, I don't I have no clue what I would say to this. So yeah, really well done. Um, go ahead and throw your essay at me, and I'll take it away. Yep, um, America bookends the narrative. Um, Although neither the author nor the characters except Kim were born American. So how is America and the idea of being American portrayed in this novel? Does it change over the course of the novel at all? Well, I think so. Let's answer the question directly and then we'll get into it. It changes literally because the final section is dedicated to being in America. I don't actually think it changes in a significant way because even at the end, America is kind of a shadowy, ambiguous force. I mean, the arrest takes place in Canada. This is just not America. It's like the American influence is a, it's a sp- spreads its tendrils around. Like it doesn't even, a lot of the worst things that America does aren't direct, aren't narrated directly. You don't get an American point of view or they don't even happen in America. So I think my short answer on this is they're just kind of a shadow, ominous shadow force throughout the whole story that kind of infects and affects many different other places, many other countries and everything. And so on 177, the novel, I think, narrates, almost narrates its way into a summary of this, though I think it is it is Harry's point of view technically, so maybe for the novel this is too simplistic or too naive, but this is as close as the book gets to a summary about this. On page 177, it reads... The tale of generations, Harry thought. James Burton watched with dismay the collapse of empire. Harry Burton was working for the collapse of communism, and Kim Burton only wanted to know how to build, one edifice at a time, the construction process being all that mattered, not whether the outcome was mosque or art gallery or prison. Of all of them, Harry thought, the one uh, of sudden rushes of sentimentality, she alone could be counted on to engage with the world without doing any harm. Obviously... A massive ironic twist there that does not happen at all. The novel concludes with her making a devastating choice that implicates somebody falsely and all that stuff. So obviously that part doesn't hold up. But I do think the book has a view of sort of inheritance or trying to move on with the generations. I think, though, and this is maybe why that's like Harry's somewhat naive point of view, it does feel like America has its grips and and that those influences, like you mentioned, um, those influences of nationalism are too overwhelming. And it is just, it remains kind of this thing, this pernicious thing you can't get rid of. And I do think, of course, and I can't get away from this reading, like the novel opens, middle of the war, end of the war, it's intense. And Hiroko still can't get away from the cultural influences. Like her, she literally works in a fact, bomb factory or something akin to that. And even then on page 16, she's dreaming about, she's thinking about, she's wondering about, you know, how do I live a modern life? You know, how do I have, how do I maintain these dreams of things I want? When will the war end? It cannot happen quickly enough was what she thought. She's not, she's not in the throes of nationalism and nor will she be for any of the book. And so I think that's also pretty telling that it's, it opens with this devastating, awful act and it pushes her life and it moves the plot and everything else, scars her, gives her symbolic, metaphorical meanings, all that stuff. But I think, so I think it is kind of a background shadow force, but it's, I don't know, in a sense, it's not the most dominant thing for the characters, but it also influences their lives the most, even if it's indirectly. Obviously, Hiroko's is quite directly, but um, it, I would also mention in, in this shadow force interpretation I'm giving, it is what kills Sajad, incor- um, not incorrectly, indirectly, 
because he goes to meet up with this person who spoke with his son last and he thought he was CIA. So it's not even a direct association. It's not even a direct, it's like the CIA shot him, right? Of course, it's literally another person who's panicking, an informant. And so it's, it it is these, you know, corrupting influences, if that makes sense. And so I, I think overall, my short version of the overall book's point of view is that, how do you feel about the kind of shadow force can't get its tendrils out or we can't get out from under its tendrils point of view or perspective. I really like that um, idea because it also makes it seem like America is the CIA, like the CIA is America, especially in how the, the influences on other cultures, it's like in favor of um, America in a lot of ways. So even in, um, in Pakistan, right? Like the, um, Harry is talking about how uh, if you're a Western person in Pakistan, they automatically assume that you're in the CIA, like everybody's CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really fitting, especially with that that play on, on the actual CIA playing um, a role in, in the novel as well. Then let me build to this. That's the first half of my answer. I would say, given that, the final section of this book then has a lot of heavy lifting to do because it's... It's like, well, let's go into the heart of the beast then. <laughs> let's let's visit the heart of this, you know, H.P. Lovecraftian cosmic horror that we can't quite know anything about. Like, it's too horrifying to look in the eye. Well, the last section of the book looks it in the eye then, which then kind of elevates its entire conclusion. I think it's pretty mixed effect. I think we already talked about my mixed reaction to the final section. It just, it left it with so much heavy lifting to do. And I think that's important to note. Um interestingly america kind of works in the in its most broad ideal ways for a lot of the characters ilsa gets to reinvent herself there right she's on board with you know she bites her tongue and gets on board with different lifestyles and watches her roommate have gay sex and is fine with it and she's unburdened you know she doesn't have class expectations culture expectations empire expectations she's not in a cold unloving marriage of you know parties and disappointment or whatever and bad sex or you know whatever their issues were myriad but so you know it gives her time to reinvent she becomes comfortable with herself harry seems comfortable there remember that he starts the story displaced unhappy wanted to live in india complained to his parents didn't want to live in england didn't feel like he was english it's the place where he becomes comfortable. He's able to do his work. He's fi- he fights his evils across the world, fights communism, and then God knows what, I guess, you know, domestic terrorism or international terrorism eventually. So Harry seems contented. You know, I think he, I don't know, I don't think he's a contented figure in the final part of the book, but he's content with the life he's chosen, or if does that make sense? His whole his contentment is with being displaced or whatever. He doesn't want to settle down. He wants to, you know, do this project for good and roam around, if if that makes sense. And even I would make a case. This would be its own essay or or trying to unpack this, but I would probably argue that even Raza, despite his reluctance at points. I still think that America is, is, is a successful experiment for him. He is allowed to be a little more free, reinvent himself. He uses his language skills for a lucrative career. Obviously, I don't think this I don't think this book would in any way argue in a pro career, get money, be happy sort of. Way. I think its ideas are right. broader and more complicated than that. But I do think that it, it's an escape for Raza because it allows him to get away from his mom, kind of be a transplant, not work, kind of run from his personal history. 
I, you could call that a success or not, I guess, but it it's effective for him. Uh, America is kind of just a symbol or is kind of a, a place to escape in a way, which, you know, reinvention, it's a big American ideal or, or, you know, kind of pull yourself up and make something of yourself. And he does express outright skepticism, you know, he, on page 312, he has a conversation with Harry. Um, about A and G, um, I've made it qu- quite clear I'm not getting involved with this contract. Raza replied, "Even so, I'm really quitting this time. Don't think a raise will change my mind." Harry crouched by the side of the pool and placed his hand on Raza's slick down hair. "I don't know what I'd do without you, son," he said. And Raza stayed. So it's you know America to him. It's it's Harry. It's of course the comfort of a father figure and everything. But it it also lets him run from his the tragedy that he and his mom endured and everything. So. Would you would you agree broadly, and you can go into detail that those three characters had a successful sort of American experience, sort of so to speak? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's uh, an adequate. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, the, Hiroko then bears the weight of the contrarian's point of view. I think she yeah. has that. Like the book sets that up. Uh, let me pull this from two ninety five then, because she really does in that final section have to represent another way of thinking, another approach to nationalism, to America, to the experience, everything else. And Hiroko lays it out pretty clearly here. Let me just isolate the quote. I have to cut some of this. Ah, here it is, bottom. And this is about New York City and kind of the cultural, multicultural mingling there. But then things shifted. The island, I think Manhattan, seemed tiny. People's views shrunken. How could a place so filled with immigrants take the idea of patriotism so seriously? Ilsa had laughed and said, the zeal of the, of the convert. And that phrase spoken by a smiling young man in Tokyo kept returning to her. American lives. It was a talisman, that phrase. The second part of it given weight by the first. All this she had thought uncomfortably felt for weeks, but today, finally, mid-January New York, the world felt different as Hiroko sat on the, with a cup of jasmine tea and the morning crossword at a West Village Bistro in that rare space of time between breakfast and lunch crowd when a lingering at the table didn't feel uncivic. So she's kind of, you know, relaxing there. And then earlier on the page, I should read this quote. It said, she didn't need so much blood and retreated only when told the, or no, wait, that wasn't the quote I wanted. <laughs> the blood quote. <laughs> what was I trying to pull from this one? Oh, here it is. Sorry, it's the beginning. And when the buildings fell on 9-11, she found herself caught up in a feeling of solidarity quite unfamiliar, utterly overwhelming. She stood beside Kim, who had driven across from Seattle in the early morning hours, handing out food to emergency workers. Later, she demanded to be allowed to give blood. What did it matter if she was old? And then the blood quote. I just pulled that one incorrectly. So it's, you know, Hiroko's caught up in it. Obviously, she just is a practical human with normal human responses to things like death and destruction. So, you know, there's that. But she always regains her center quickly. She, of course, takes up the position then in a representative way in the novel of someone who doesn't have these ties, doesn't feel nation bound. And, you know, her journey in the novel proves it. I think we've already hashed out a lot of those ideas, how they come off or don't, etc. So I would just note that. I think then, given all of that, I don't know to answer your original question, even if I could. It's complex for sure. I I think the idea of America stays the same for all of the book. I guess I'm surprised how many characters I felt like it quote-unquote worked for in the end. Obviously, it doesn't for Raza. My reading of him is very skewed, because he literally is detained and probably in prison, like you said, for an indefinite, horrible amount of time at the end of the book. So it doesn't work for him in that sense. But there's the sense that it did for a, for a while, right? It gave him something and then, of course, betrayed him. So maybe the reading is more negative. Maybe I'm just being too naive with his reading. But anyway, I'm going to simplify quick to conclude. 
let me reframe it to a different question. I, if you ask me, is America an oppressive or like nefarious force in the novel? I think the answer has to be yes from beginning to end. I don't know if that was the novel's full intention, and I think it's that final section, the speed of it, maybe what some of the characters do or don't do with it, that makes that final bit a bit confusing. Um, maybe a bit more time with Kim or New York, um, Ilsa would have countered it a little or maybe give some, I don't know, not contradiction to it, but some complexity to it. I do think a lot of that final interaction between Kim, her betrayal of Hiroko, and then their final exchange is meant to just do a lot of heavy lifting. I think the sim- symbolism of that moment, the intensity of it, the emotional stakes, all that stuff, the things that are outlined in it the burned feathers we've talked about as a symbol. It just, the ending of it has to do so much, I think. But yeah, that would be my my long and short both answers to this. It, I do think it is, let me get back to your original question. Um, how is it, what is it? How is it portrayed? I guess I would stick with the shadow force, kind of nefarious, negative inner, you know, thing. But I also don't know if the conclusion holds that up. In all of my ramblings there, did you pick up on anything you wanted to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Um, yeah, and I think the the idea of um, it being kind of an oppressive or nefarious force and a shadow force in a lot of ways, it, it brings back to me the, the whole section about um, British India. And uh-huh, that was yeah. less of a shadow force. That was more of a forced force. Um, th- the implications of which later, like with um, the... What what is it when they left and there was the the partition the fighting, yes, um, so that bloody incidents and stuff like that. But these Western cultures that exert their influence and and right now it's America, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But in the past it was England and and other countries. So yeah, it's is I think. America is depicted as like this powerhouse that uh, that has a lot of great opportunities and has a lot of great individuals, right? Um, but the uh, the fervor, the the fanaticism of of being an American, of of proving that you're an American, right? Um, in a lot of ways, that you have this American um, patriotism. That's that's the harmful thing. Yeah. The, the novel is quite firmly anti-colonialist. The oh, yeah. two middle sections make that extra, the two, I guess they'd be called middle sections, the time in India, the time in Pakistan with, with Russia at the time. There, it's mm-hmm. it, it clearly has that project on its mind, and I think thematically is unclear. The America stuff, just I found the conclusion, and maybe it was the sections with Kim that just didn't connect for me or felt rushed or something that I wasn't... I don't know. I didn't feel as comfortable placing a reading on that. That final section just felt like it had too much for your specific question, which is a great question. I felt like it had a lot on its shoulders for that final part. And I just felt a little less settled. I felt like that part of the novel was a little less sure of itself than the other two parts in India and then in Pakistan. But we've covered that well. Any other final thoughts on those two essays? Uh, nope, I'm good. Let's move then to The Lost Pages. We've got two segments left today on the Part 2 Book Club. The Lost Pages is a brief segment, but where we each express something, it could be a topic, character arc, conflict, anything really, that we just felt like the text didn't explore enough. We'd like something more. We were asking a little bit more of the book. Anyway, um, Amanda, what are your Lost Pages for Burn Shadows? Um, so I agree that the second half was different in a lot of ways, and thematically it worked, but there were some 
stylistic things that were maybe different. Mm-hmm. But um, what I would actually really love is to read like a sequel or a story about Raza's experience after being arrested. I think that especially with the idea of like um, the harmful effects of like the the American fervor, and especially because she also mentions in the book um, the Patriot Act. Which, yeah. you know, um, at the time of this book coming to print, I don't think that a whole lot of people were actually aware of what that meant and what the implications of that act of were. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that having, especially because the prologue starts with Raza in jail, um, uh, in, in the processing center there, like, I, I would just love to, I think that more information about what happens to him there how long he's there, the, what he has to experience there and like the questioning that he receives and like the distrust in general. Um, I think that would really help to cement, especially in the second half, the, Mm -hmm. the kind of like the idea of like the American patriotism and, and stuff like that. That's harmful. Yeah. My lost pages were quite similar. I just think, I don't know how many times in this episode I have to say the same thing. <laughs> Hopefully not too often or too many times. I would just give more to Kim's character arc. It, it just, yeah. having the final couple scenes be what they are, having her choices doom so many things to, at the end, I would just give 20 more pages to her. Either give her 20 more pages. In my mind, it would be pre-9-11 maybe. Like, let's get... Let's see some people settled in America. Let's get those ideas out there and get some character going. Then we can shake it all up and cause that devastation and have it ripple. You know, have it be like the atomic event. Like, imagine the 16 pages that open it before the atomic bomb with that level of writing given to just Ilsa and Kim maybe as they settle in New York or something. I don't know. Or as they settle in America. I don't know. I'm just imagining, of course. I'm I'm doing my broken brain thing again. But I just think Kim needs more (laughs) as my short version. I would also say if, if you said, well, you can't can't add pages what are you gonna do i don't need as much of india as we got maybe i thought it was really well done but i do think we could sneak some of those pages and give it to the end again especially considering how much depends on kim's life and views even raza i thought could have done with a touch more um the scenes the really brutal scenes of him trying to get across the world at the end i thought were well written that actually adds on to your last page as well because in those moments it's clear that she could explore some kind of imprisonment based storytelling or something that she could probably pull that off. Again, those scenes felt a little rushed to me, but that, you know, given the scope of the book, it's understandable and everything. So I just, I don't know. I feel like that my, my lost pages are pretty clear at this point. (laughs) I feel like I've said that a bunch. Yeah. So yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. All right, final segment then. We always end the book clubs with critical assistance. This is where we go digging into the research department. Still underfunded, you know, still still hard up for cash, <laughs> the research department. But we do some searching online for some criticism. Could be reviews, could be just blogs or general thoughts about the book. This one's pretty new, and so there was plenty to dig through. Why don't you start us off with your critical assistance, Amanda? Who did you pull from, and what do you want to talk about? Um, I pulled from a website called feminisminindia.com. Fitting. Um, and it's Burnt Shadows Review, Painting on a Canvas of Conflict and Loss. And this was hmm. written by Sri Devi Wisvambaran, I think. Okay. I am so sorry if I butchered your name. Sri Devi um, seems like a safe, yeah, okay, I'm on board. Um, 
So never um, ask me for pronunciation. Why do you pause with me for pronunciations? <laughs> it's if we've established even one thing on our however many episodes we're on at this point, it's that I I am the one. You're going to take my bit. That's my bit. <laughs> That's my joke. So I'm funny. the one who can't read read names. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I you're you're in um, good ca- care is what I'm saying. Or you're in good company. I mean, with me. So. Um. Yeah, so she um, was generally very positive uh, in her review, which is okay. surprising because I love this book too. So mm-hmm. She says, um, Burnt Shadows is as poetic as it can be, and a new meaning unravels in front of you each time you read it. The author has carved every character with such finesse that the situations and emotions characters go through will create a lasting impression on you. Occasionally, the writing seems to be the excelling point rather than the story, especially in the end. Hmm. So a couple of things here. Um, As poetic as it can be. Yes, I love the writing style and the meaning unravels in front of you each time you read it. So this is the second time. Um, that I've I've read this novel, um, and the first time my remembrance was just that I loved it because of the writing style. Um, mm-hmm. And looking back at my notes from the first time I read it, the things that I focused on are completely different from the things that I focused on this time around. So I was at the time studying affect theory, and so that's what I was like focusing on is um, uh, physical responses to things. Um, and the depictions of those physical responses. And then this time around, I was looking at the idea of imperialism and nationalism and patriotism. So that's, so it's the, the change each time that I come back to it. It's, um, really, really great. Actually. I love, I love being able to do that with a book. (laughs) Yeah, no, completely change the lens, change the reading. I like it. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is a great book to do that too. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other part is um, the writing seems to be the excelling point rather than the story, especially in the end. Yeah, so like I said, like the first the first time I read it, the, the thing that struck me was just the writing style. It was just so beautifully written. And then reading through it again, I was like, yeah, this is so amazing. And then we get to the second half, and I was like, this is a total change from the first half mm-hmm. of the book, um, where the first half is like very much stylistic and and the plot is interesting but it's more of like i i think a focus on on thematic elements in a lot of ways and then the last half it seems almost like an action movie in some ways where there's a lot just happening in quick succession yeah um, without that same care put into um developing style yeah it has its moments, I think. It had moments, I I just think it gets a little unwieldy, which then causes, yeah. when a story becomes unwieldy too, or perhaps is in my own criticism terms, like soap operatic or something, or just contrivances are happening, again, my, my interpretations, it, you just pay less attention to the style. That's the unfortunate kind of reality of it, is when things ramp up in that way, I'm not savoring sentences as much as thinking like, wait, did what? Is she's she's doing what now? She's Is that her red hair in the parking lot? Like, what? Anyway, so... Yeah. Yeah, um, feel free to keep going. Uh, the story is cast in a huge geographical and cultural canvas. The juxtapositioning of noted massacres in human history and personal loss and sorrow is notable. The author brilliantly positions love and humanity in a contrasting environment of war and yet manages to invoke many emotions without confusion. I thought that last bit was spot on where... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah her depictions of these characters 
aside from from Kim in a lot of ways. It's just like the the emotional richness that she brings to each person is just amazing. It's it's a, it's an amazing feat considering how many characters there are that she really dives into. Um, yeah, agree. And I think it's just great. I I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um and then she goes on to say another notable portion is the pitting of two popular ideologies which are at odds with each other she does it with such nuance that it's impossible not to empathize with both of them abdullah a conservative muslim who finds himself at the wrong end of the law and kim burton still raw from the wounds of 9-11 and her personal loss come together in the end to voice out the obvious religion versus terrorism arguments so that goes with the whole like yes the the ending fits thematically Mm. But the part where she says she does it with such nuance that it's impossible not to empathize with both of them, I found myself not as able to... I understood, I suppose, uh, Kim's whole like fear and everything like that. Um, however, I don't... I was in high school when 9-11 happened, but um, I did not react i suppose in with the same level of fear towards people who looked like they were of middle eastern descent that kim who is supposed to represent the american uh response to 9-11 mm-hmm. I, I don't think that i responded in that way perhaps that's because i'm not full white and i'm not from like yes i'm american but also, like I had, I suppose, like with with coming from a different culture, it's like, or my mom coming from a different culture and being raised uh, partially in that culture, I, I maybe that's like why I was not as afraid of people of um, of color <laughs> at the time. I don't know. Like I just, I don't know why I didn't have that same fear level. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, for I so did. many reasons, you didn't live there. Parents weren't involved yeah. directly. I don't know. We could come up with a bunch. But I just think yeah. in the criticism of a text level, purely that level, I don't yeah. think their conversation had all that much subtlety. And again, it just felt a touch rush to me. It felt like something yeah. slightly rash. Also, this is another stylistic thing we didn't comment on. Shamsi loves to skip time without warning. And as she sees fit in her novel, that's fine. The time jumpiness of it also then lends to senses of confusion, like, okay, Kim responds really rashly in the car to one or two things that were said and exchanged after agreeing to a really intense, dangerous project. It just seems like too much of a a heel turn on her part, given the stakes, given what she agreed to. But also there's the time jump of like, well, haven't you had time to mourn your father? Like, how long ago was that? It doesn't, if she was acting rash the day after her father died and did something offensive or something, I don't know. There's just a, there's a certain time um, conflation or flattening to some events that right. I think can lead to the simplicity or maybe making it seem. I didn't find that part to be especially nuanced. I also don't think the book has a nuanced view of colonialism. Or, it, yeah. or it's nuanced in that it has portrayals of many different kinds and interesting different perspectives. I don't think its thematic takeaway is all that confusing or nuanced. I think it, it's yeah. it's much more so about other ideas, but that is not one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think I think the nine eleven positioning actually is kind of nuanced, right? That's not an event that I think needs one or interpretation over the other. But I do think that her view of countries going into other places and and doing things uh, perhaps extorting resources perhaps uh, just meddling perhaps imposing things i think her view on all that is pretty clear i don't i don't think that's the 
I don't know. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Yeah. Cool. Any other thoughts from that blog? Yeah, just the final thing that I have here, which is considering how elaborate Shamsi was in the beginning, I was rather disappointed with the abrupt ending. I looked up from the last mm. chapter as an unsatiated reader who could do with more with a more specific ending. So for me, I actually I I was satisfied with the actual ending. Um, I wanted to read more about mm. Raza. I would love to have like th- there be like a sequel or something like that. But the ending itself, as I mentioned before, I thought that it was a great connection to the prologue specifically and and i think that it was very purposefully done and i really appreciated the ending although the second half still had other issues the ending itself yeah did not there were some great brutal twists at the end too obviously it was meant to be a very very downcast and grim ending since Roz is in trouble and it's all you know she did that unnecessarily but the lines at the end with the policeman saying no you did nothing wrong you did a great thing your father would be proud of you is a line in there Mm -hmm. that is obviously raises a million questions thematically about what Harry would have wanted what Harry believed who he what projects he fought for and didn't you know um right who he would support and wouldn't and everything like it's I think that ending was great I just the exact conversation between Kim and Hiroko I think had some confusing parts in it but or maybe again was bearing some weight that it couldn't quite didn't quite have built up to hold or something anyway um my critical assistance comes from the washington post it's an archive from not that long ago this was published you know pretty recently right 2015 12 this oh, recent. particular novel yeah Re- recent ish yeah, uh, 2009 nine there we go okay you know, recent-ish. <laughs> Post-9-11, obviously. So there's that. Anyway, this is from by Carolyn C. S-E-E from Washington Post Archives. It's just a review of the book. A couple quotes. It's a historical novel with the very highest am- intentions asking the question, how has the modern world gotten itself to the edge of nuclear annihilation? Shamsi's answer may or may not sound accurate depending on your own view. The world has been cursed, she suggests, since America dropped not one but two atomic bombs, first on Hiroshima, then gratuitously on Nagasaki in the summer of 1945. That unspeakably awful twin evil, or sorry, twin event, not evil, has always been complicated by questions of race. America would never have done such a thing, some people say, to the Germans. Caucasian lives would never have been submitted to such an experiment. Do you think this is a reading that the book, is that, do you think how Hiroko would frame it? Like, is that a reading from the book or is that the author kind of, the author of the article, I mean, interpreting the novel? Because Hiroko definitely ponders the event. She wonders about the bombs, whether they're necessary. She reflects back on the, you know, we got to protect American lives. I don't know if the race thing, obviously it's, it has to be present given just the racial demographics of different places, but I just don't know if it's the first concern of the book. I don't know. What do you think about this quote? It's so I think that, um, with, uh, British India, I think that race was important at that time. Oh yeah. And it comes up in that section too. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. But like when it comes to, America America would never have done that to the Germans. <sighs> I don't know. I I feel like America would have. <laughs> well, and that, I'm just saying, even within the context of the story, I just don't know if this right, interpretation, yeah. presentation is the number one concern of the story. I just was like... I don't think it was. I think yeah. that in British um, India, for sure, that was um, a concern. Um, that was definitely something that was one of the reasons for the idea of their superiority. But America's 
is uh, well america is a melting pot in a lot of ways right but i do remember um henry burton talking to harry mm-hmm. and saying oh you're so proud of your um harry was saying like yeah america that we that you know everybody's got a chance and everybody can reinvent themselves mm-hmm. and um henry was like oh even even your your African American and Black friends can they right? So there was that. Yes. Oh, okay. So yeah, there was mention that. of that racial thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and then like with the in after nine eleven, the fear of well, she she mistakes an Italian at one point right for yes. being Middle Eastern, and he's like, whoa, no, definitely not. Um, don't say that out loud. Like, I don't want to get mobbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So in that way, like, but that, again, is, like, a direct result of, like, the fear of because of the 9-11 and who perpetrated that. But, like, uh, I don't know. Like, race is – that's such a blanket it, idea it did that feel I, too I don't know. Comfortably, it felt too comfortably stated in this article – Given, yeah. I think that it had. I think just framing it in terms of colonialism, which always comes with racial components, but isn't isn't by definition racially based. Maybe it is now. I don't know. I'm not up on my theory, <laughs> but I yeah. I just it, framing it in this way just feels a slightly off of the novel's project. But it could be my biased reading. I guess it just wouldn't have been the first way I would have framed it. I do agree that it has the very highest intention. It does feel it feels like a novel of massive stakes, like a huge intellectual kind of project. Given the scope, yes. given the ideas, so I did agree with that. Next quote. I could say that the first third of the novel is far more believable than the last two, or that the author um, stumbles when she attempts to create conversation between elderly women or Afghan tribesmen or American mercenaries. But the real problem is that Burnt Shadows is a novel of argument. Her argument is that British and American empires, through their um, consciousnesslessness, colonialism, and particularly America's use of the bomb, are responsible for the very troubled world we live in today. Lots to unpack. I the middle third again I thought was the best part strongest for for many reasons tension narrative development characters ideas it's everything in Pakistan so I don't think I agree with that I do think that this book presents and this is such an interesting kind of counterpoint or discussion point for us because we we have encountered together in our travels our literary journeys and travels a clearly politically aimed book or short story collection that we both bounced off of pretty aggressively. So I think we've seen what fiction can look like when it has a sort of political, every novel, first of all, is a novel of argument. I don't know what that even means. I don't, I'm not sure what she, I don't know. I, I think she means political argument and even expressly urgently modern political. And, and some would even say that's nitpicking, right? Any politics can be updated and have modern things to say. Even if it's about an ancient thing, you can derive political and philosophical meaning, whatever, whatever we're getting big picture. So I don't, I don't even agree with that phrasing necessarily. I think what she really means, it's a novel of political, urgent modern political argument which i think is true and i do think she has criticisms of colonialism i the bomb thing is interesting because obviously it it, it's imprinted on her it's the thing that catapults the whole narrative also nuclear warfare comes up again later in the story with india and pakistan but it just i think the novel's concerns appropriately kind of ripple out wider than that obviously the ending of it has nothing to do with the bomb though again the pakistan india thing does come up but the 911 repercussions the treatment of people in that sense the invasion of other places based on that and everything else that's not 
she keeps coming back to the bomb thing, and it is a convenient way of framing it just because of the novel's construction, but I just think the project here is a little bigger. I'm not sure if I disagree with much of the rest of the statement, though. I don't know. What do you think? I agree. I think that it's... um it's more than just the bomb. And it's also more than she makes a statement that, um, that British and American empires through their conscienceless, conscienceless. Yeah, I know. I couldn't read that either. Jeez. Tongue twister. <laughs> are responsible for the very troubled world we live in today. I don't, I, I took it as a, in a broader view, even than that. It's not just that because like with, um, what's go what was going on with like, Pakistan and Afghanistan too. It's, it's Russia's it's in not, there. It's not about being American or the the colonialism necessarily. It's the the personal identities of these nations and how to how to instill nationalism a national pride in these nations in the way that Pakistan did it, which there's a whole section where they discuss it is through the Islam, what she calls Islamification. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So the, the real reason I think that, uh, what Shamsi was, is trying to impart here. is not necessarily just America and it's not just England. Um, the British empire, it is the idea of nationalism, of national superiority. Yeah. That is the real source of all this evil. Yeah, she indicts those two empires as it's as she words it in the novel. I mean, Champsy indicts them. I think fairly clearly that's a fair summary, but it doesn't the project just does feel a little bit broader as you and I have yeah. discussed now at great length. So I yeah, that sure. description felt pretty mixed to me. So, it felt like again she was putting maybe a little too much on the as weird as it feels to say, because the opening is so stirring and intense, and it's just like, but she's almost putting too much on the bomb. The book spirals and ripples out so far past it, in in a way. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's always anchored there. It's Hiroko's entire arc is kind of based on that, so I get that, but it, it's just an odd phrasing to me. Anyway, or odd way to portray the whole novel to me. Um, yeah. Final quote pulled from this one. After Kim Burton delivers the final coup de grace to Hiroko and her loved ones, Hiroko can only say, You are the kindest, most generous woman I know, but right now, because of you, I understand for the first time how nations can applaud when their governments drop a second nuclear bomb. There's something quite wacky about that sentence. First, Kim Burton, outside of offering Hiroko a cup of hot chocolate, has been neither generous or sorry, neither kind nor generous. Second, there aren't any governments that have dropped a second atomic bomb. There's only the United States. You can pick holes in this three-generational tale of white oppression, but you can't argue with deeply held beliefs. This is what a Pakistani novelist, Camilla Shamsi, believes. It's instructive to read this on many levels. Lots to unpack in this final quote. So much. Um, which I think was two paragraphs I combined. First of all, calling it a coup de, coup de gras is insane. That's not at all what it was. A coup de gras? That's like a... Isn't that like a killing blow? Like, it was a total accident that's... Like, isn't that the totally wrong expression or am I being too nitpicky? No, that's... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't call that nitpicky. Yeah. Like, coup de gras is like... An, it's like you're an assassin or something. It's like an intention. Yeah. She didn't intend to attack them at all. Like, she intended to do a spiteful thing to a stranger. Like, that was the... 
it wasn't. That's the whole point. And to me, that reading is so wild because it that changes the entire interpretation of the end. If Kim Burton is a mastermind performing a coup de grace, then the her entire position in the novel changes my reading. Like it, it seems like a catastrophe of accidental emotional happenstances and dominoes falling. Like it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a master stroke of assassination or something or some right. plotted. I just thought that phrase was insane. I was like, whoa, that I don't understand that at all. Like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Anyway, so completely different reading. I did think the couple final lines between Hiroko and them were, I, I did think a little odd, but not for the reasons she picks up on um, her two criticisms. Um, she's been neither kind nor generous. Um, she's referring to their whole relationship, Miss um, C. Like, it's not just she's talking about you've been kind of generous in the last 10 minutes. You, I've lived, like, they live together. <laughs> They've known each yeah. other for many years. So that whole reading is really shallow. I was, like, shocked by that sentence. I was like, that's like an amateurish reading of that exchange. Did, right? Yeah. That's For like a sure, really yeah. bizarre to have that. And yeah, I was like, okay, did you not remember the 50 pages where they're roommates and living and then they, they're like best friends because her mom is best friends and she's the only like friend in America, Hiroko's? Like Kim is the only mm. person she really knows? I don't, that whole sentence I was a little shocked by. And then second, there aren't any governments that have dropped a second atomic bomb. This feels like English high school English teacher quality criticism of like nitpicking grammar. It says how they can applaud not that they did yeah. applaud. Like, you've misread the verb. Uh, like, I don't... That's such a shallow, insane sentence to put in. It doesn't... That's not some deep, interesting insight. That's like a you're nitpicking her verb tense, which wasn't even incorrect. Yeah. It's... Mm-hmm. Right? Or can, yeah, can applaud versus... Like, and so there's the... Yeah, I don't... Some of those criticisms felt so shallow to me. It yeah. just felt like misreads almost or something. Yep, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I did not read those lines in the same way that she did No, not at all. It was like a hypothetical. It says can, or maybe she should have put could, how a nation could drop a bomb. Like then I guess that would absolve her of this grammatical error or something. I don't know. I just didn't read it so nitpicky specifically. I'm sure Camilla Shamsi is well aware there has only been two atomic bombs. I'm pretty sure the world knows pretty clearly where and when atomic bombs have been used. So I don't, it just, that's why I felt, that's why I felt, that's why I said high school English teacher. It doesn't, it's like the kind of criticism you get from someone who thinks they're being smart when you're like yeah but you're not even dealing with my ideas you're dealing with my grammar which can be quickly rectified so like it just i I was shocked by how this article ended i was just like that's your final thought on this book is those couple of really shallow bad criticism sentences like okay anyway um and then she does end, I would say, overall on the positive. I don't think she loved the book, but she basically said, like, you have to grapple with this. This is a perspective of someone we have to try and understand, you know, deeply held belief. It's instructive to read. I, I don't think she loved the book, but I think it's, yeah, she found it worthy of thinking about. I So, yeah, that was the final quote I pulled. I don't agree with this article, I would say, on the whole. I do think it matched the scope or not matched the scope. It, it sort of identified the scope correctly. So that quote, yeah. I, I guess I agreed with. But it just ended. I wanted to pull those end quotes because that's some of the final stuff she wrote about the book in the article. And I just thought some of it was so weirdly worded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really strange. Anyway, any uh, final thoughts on that article? Uh, nope, I'm I'm good. I'm still reeling from that interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> She's been neither kind to Hiroko uh, nor generally. Like, what about the fifty other? Yeah, it's like I went over and, and poured over their interact. They have so many other interactions you can try and analyze and reread and 
try and unpack like we you know we tried to do a couple of those things like they just have a history to it it's not i don't know yeah strange strange i also didn't love their final exchange but we've already unpacked all the reasons why it's not not for those kind of grammar nitpicks i guess so to speak yeah so anyhow okay any final thoughts on could we possibly have any on burnt shadows this has been one of our longest (laughs) ones yet because there's so much to talk about yeah no fitting enough it it was a epic in every sense story grandly ambitious and i think we tried to match that with our length should we go on for another hour and a half then just to say we did (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) i truly i can say with sincerity that i think i'm tapped out of my ideas on this book i would need a new i would need some kind of new segment to re-inspire i really feel like i've said everything i wanted to say in the best possible way you know i don't i don't feel like i've left anything unsaid on my end anyway so I don't think that I have either. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, we'll leave with that and a couple of grammar nitpicks to boot at the end, just how we like it. Let's get the red. <laughs> let's get the red pens out, and the real interesting stuff can happen. <laughs> oh my gosh! Anyway, um, we are, as I mentioned at the beginning, the lightly literary podcast. Thanks for so much for listening to the very end. We do have other books coming up in order. Amanda, why don't you announce them this week? You take it away. What do we got coming oh, up? Okay, we've got True Grit by Charles Portis. Um, followed by Homegoing by Yah Jessie, but her last name is uh, spelled G-Y-A-S-I. And uh, finally, we'll have They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. Excellent. Bunch of fiction. Novel, novel, novel. (laughs) Back on the grind. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, and you can look for those episodes. We always post our book recommendations, so the intro to each book on a Monday. That's every two weeks, obviously. And then, yeah, book clubs will continue to come out every Friday, so look in the feed on Fridays. You'll see a part one, then a part two the following week. We hope you can join us for any of those reads. And as always, we'll see you between the pages.